up, everyone? This is Rafael Garcia on, what's the day? May 10th, 2020. It's been a long weekend because we had our first MMA action in almost two months last night, and it was a hell of a show to begin with, but, you know, I'll talk about that on another day. Today, I am talking to a colleague, a friend in Trent Rinesmith, and he and I are going to have an interesting conversation about MMA, the media, and his career. But first and foremost, Trent, I want to say hello and thank you for your time today. Hello, and uh, no problem, man. No problem at all. Good stuff, man. I appreciate you taking some time out of your Sunday after what was a long night last night. I'm sure you were up watching the whole um, showcase that was 249, right? Yeah, yeah. It was a, a good a good night of fights. Made me, you know, forget about all the negative stuff for a little while. So that was that was a welcome break. Good, good. Yeah, we'll, we'll dive into that a little bit more in a few. But first, I want to talk about you and mixed martial arts. Um, if you don't mind, man, share your story about when you had your first exposure to MMA. Like, what is it that caused you to catch the bug and get hooked on this sport? When I was, um, I think, I forget how old I was, but I was pretty young. But I was out of out of school, working a regular, you know, working in a warehouse job. And on weekends, whenever there was a big boxing pay-per-view, and this was, I believe, in you know the Tyson era. If I have things right, I'm not 100% on that, but I know that we would we would pool our money and buy boxing pay-per-views and go over to one guy's house. And it was always the same house. And then we saw an ad for UFC one, and we were like, "Oh, well, that looks interesting." And so we, you know, we just put money together and watched. UFC one and you know if you didn't know anything about MMA which we didn't it was who's this scrawny dude who's out there just tearing everybody apart and it was Gracie and that kind of hooked me in and so I watched um, UFC for a while but then when things kind of went underground and it got into the whole tape trading um, time I, I I just didn't get into that and just kind of backed off um, so that was my first thing. And then there was the break. And then I don't remember when I got it back into it, but I know it was related to writing about it, but yeah. Okay. It's okay. Been, yeah. Go ahead. So before we, um, that, uh, I have an echo. There we go. I have to get killed. So before we dive into the writing piece of that, that, uh, did you find yourself ever at a point where you were watching more? MMA than boxing as MMA's growth kind of continued to balloon and boxing kind of declined over some of the years. Did you ever find yourself watching more of that than you were of boxing? No, I stuck with boxing because that was, well, everybody that I was working with was interested in, you know, the MMA. We watched the UFC events when, when we could get them. We, they were older than me. And so they had all grown up on boxing and that was kind of, kind of what they stuck with. And I had grown up on boxing too. I remember being a kid, we would, you know, we would watch boxing because it was on TV all the time. When I was younger, it was on uh, whatever, what it was Wide World of Sports and stuff like that. So boxing was much more accessible for me growing up. And so that's kind of what I grew up on, the boxing. And I wrestled, you know, of course, for, for years and years. But it was always boxing early on until I got old enough to know, you know, um, I had my own money that I could just buy pay-per-views and stuff on my own. <laughs> but yeah, boxing was my the way in, for sure. Who was it that 
you watched during that time? And I know you mentioned Mike Tyson already, but who was it beyond that? When I was growing up, I remember um, Alfredo Benitez, like that kind of age. Um, Duran was big. I remember the Hearns and Hagler fight. Um, I remember Mancini um, and that that terrible that fight with uh, Dooku Kim. I remember that. So it was in that era that I grew up. And then as we got older, it turned into you know the Tyson era. So I'm, you know I'm not I'm not young. You know that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not even going to joke on that one. We're all getting up. We're all getting up there. So the last question about boxing I want to ask you is. You're on a secluded island, and you only get one fight to watch until someone can get there and save you, and you have to watch it over on repeat. That's all you have. Which fight are you picking and why? I'm watching uh, the Hagler Hearns because I don't know. I I want to be. It was the anniversary a little while ago. I forget what I think. I forget how many years, but I watched it that day because it popped up on my Twitter timeline. I must have watched it five or six times, and each time. You know, he, he gets that adrenaline jolt when they start right from the start of the fight. So it's it's a short fight, but it's nonstop and it's just incredible. And I I I can I can't stop watching that. Whenever it's on, I'll watch the whole thing and it's just an awesome fight. Yeah, I have to go back and watch that one. It's been a little while since I've actually sat down and done that. Um and I do remember that the anniversary just passed, but I can't remember I'm like you, I can't remember what uh, year that they were celebrating. So um, let's talk about what led you into MMA as a profession. How did that get started? Because um, I believe you started with Junkie, right? Can you walk me through that path? You were at Junkie. I know you were at The Athletic, and now you're with Buddy Elbow. Uh, uh, how did you get started, and kind of where are you at now? I started um, I started as an NHL writer. So, And at some point, um, they just asked me if I wanted to write about MMA. And this was my way back in, was someone asked me at, that I had written about the NHL. They asked me if I wanted to write about MMA. So I did. I forget where it was from, but it was some, you know, little site. Um, I forget what that one was, but that didn't last long. And then I, I moved on to Bleacher Report, again, covering um, NHL M- and MMA and worked there, just worked my way up. And eventually I was the um, associate editor at both the MMA and the NHL verticals at the same time. So it was um, still writing, but also working day-to-day with the writers. Um, when Turner bought Bleacher Report, I left because they were switching w- the way they were doing things with um, contract workers, and it was it was risky for me, I thought, so I just left. Um, and then I went to Bloody Elbow for a while, and um, after that, it, it's funny because I would bother Dan stuff about once a year. I would email him and be like, hey, you need anybody to work? You need anybody to work? And it was always no, no, no. And I would just bother him year to year, probably uh, four or five years. And, and during one of those times, he finally said yes and gave me, gave me some stuff to work on. And then when that happened, I moved over to Junkie, um, stayed there for... I, a while, and then when Dan left to go to the athletic, there was a management change at Junkie. Um, things didn't work out all that well for me there, so I moved. I left, and that's when I started doing the uh, the newsletter. And I was like, you know what? I'm just going to do this. 
gonna that's when my 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 um focus changed too um things got a little more um opinion based and then i started doing that and then um bloody elbow uh, asked me to, if i wanted to do opinion stuff and that's where i'm at now still doing the newsletter i'm um, doing the daily podcast and doing the stuff at bloody elbow so a long kind of winding road to get where i'm at yeah, and we're definitely going to talk about a couple of different pieces of that road. I wanted to ask you a first question, though, about that is, where do you see yourself? Are you a member of the MMA media or are you MMA journalist? Or do you think that there's a difference between the two? I, that's a good question. I, I think I can work between, I'm, I'm definitely, you know, focused on opinion, but then there's the things like the interview with uh, Dr. Zach Benny that just came out, that what I just did with the um, uh, COVID-19 testing and he, he, him being an epidemiologist. And then the story on the work stoppage was with Lucas Middlebrook. He's a lawyer. So that stuff's more journalism, but it's kind of based out of my opinion. So I'm going to talk to people that I want to get their opinion on on what I um, how I feel. So if I have I have a base to start with, and, and like with the epidemiologist, is like, all right, I want to learn about all this kind of thing because I'm leaning towards the side of you know testing and really working with the science more than believing what the UFC is telling me that is what they're doing. And the same with the work stoppage. I think the fighters should have more rights. And so I want to get the input from a sports, a lawyer who works with sports and had some background in unions. So I kind of in the middle, I guess, but I'm more opinion um, than journalist. So I, I don't really know how I would classify myself. You know, I'm not afraid to offer my opinion on anything, which is has become clear, but so I guess it would just be more of a media member than a journalist, but I can do journalism and I sometimes I enjoy it, but it's not all I stick to, which makes things a little dicey sometimes. Yeah, I definitely um, understand playing both sides of that coin, um, but it doesn't really seem to matter what side of the coin you're on, because if you cover MMA and it's not um, in a always positive light all the time you're going to get some pushback from fans and what everyone almost everyone involved with the, with the sport it seems like so where do you think that that kind of comes from like why is there such a pushback from fighters um, organizations and fans towards the individuals who cover this sport with the fighters and the fans i think it's by design and i'll speak about the ufc on this one because i don't think the other organizations do this or do it as much the design i think from the ufc and this goes all the way back to the uh, the early days of the well, when the fertitas took over and, and dana white the design was to promote the ufc and not the the sports so much and not the fighters and so the focus being on them they've they've put Dana White and the and the and the UFC brand in front of everyone so long and pushed UFC Dana White, UFC Dana White. And the fans have been kind of conditioned to believe that Dana White is this some kind of, you know, godhead and without him there would be no MMA. Now 
some of that might be partially true um, just because of his the way he's promoted the, the UFC so much. But none of that happens without the Fertitas either because they're the money men. But I think, I think the Fertitas were smart enough to know that Dana White could promote the, the UFC better than they could to the average fan. Um, and it's just become this condition to the fans and the fighters that Dana White is, you know, the end all be all of the UFC. And so no matter what he says, because the sport has been, the UFC has been built up to this big thing. He's the guy that is always right. And so they, uh, they count out to him, um, with the fighters though, it, I, uh, some of that is probably due to fear too, because if, I mean, we're, we're finding out more and more during this, uh, the lawsuit that if you got on the wrong side of the UFC, you would, um, you, you, there were repercussions and we know that, I mean, we saw what happened to, to, um, Leslie Smith. So I think the, uh, the, the pushback becomes, you don't know what you're talking about because Dana White said this and Dana White's always right. And you don't know anything about the sport because that's what he tells them. And they've, kind of fall into uh, believe his cult of personality. It's a weird thing. Um, I, but then there's, on the same, same, by the same token, there's a bunch of people who can see through that. So, and they're not nearly as vocal. That's the problem, I think. The, the Dana White supporters, as far as the fighters and the fans are much more vocal than the, uh, the ones that support the fighters and, and just the sport in general. I think that's the big problem. So something I thought about after the sale of the UFC, I think that was, what, in 2017? I believe that happened, 2018. I hypothesized that Dana White would be out. I thought he was going to get pushed out in some way, shape, or form. Um, but he's still here, you know, 2020. Yeah. He's still roaring along. So at this point in time, do you think he is more of a detriment to the industry, or is he still as basically being the face of um, MMA at this point in time? Do you think he is doing more harm than good? I've thought for a long time that he does more harm than good. Um, and I tried to find out, I tried to find one thing I wrote for Cage Potato, who I had also written for, I forgot to mention them, but I should because Ben Goldstein was great to me and let me write whatever I wanted whenever I had an idea that worked for them. But uh, I tried to find a story I wrote years ago that, that he should have been fired. And this was before the sale. Because he was detrimental, so I've I've thought for a long time he's been hurting the overall growth of the sport. Um, I believe that now too because it's much more visible, and I don't think his antics work um, now that we know how much the UFC is worth and how much visibility it has. Um, there's no way you can compare him as a sport leader to the uh, the to Goodell um, or Gary Bettman or Adam Silver, they're all much more professional, much more polished, much smarter. And uh, they can they can promote their sport without, you know, degrading others and bullying others. And I think he hurts the sport and he, I think he hurts the growth. Um, because, I mean, if I'm running a business and I'm not going to, if I'm a sponsor or something, I'm not going to get into involved with Dana White over any of the other sports. And we see that because the sponsors, the UFC grabs, um, I often don't know who they are until their name 
shows up on the octagon and I have to, you know, Google. But the other sports, we, we know who the sponsors are. Um, I think right now, I think Endeavor, I think um, they like what he does for some reason. I don't. Um, I think he's just um, a bully and someone who is not, he's not good for growth. I mean, you need somebody a little more polished, a little more professional. Um, you know, Brian Stan would have been a great, a great person right now. Uh, Daniel Cormier would be a great representative right now as the as the face of the organization. The problem with those two guys is that they're former fighters, and do they want to be in a business knowing that they're paying their friends sixteen percent of the revenue? Um, I don't know if someone like Stan or, or Cormier would be comfortable with that coming from, you know, being fighters. Um, but I think he'd pay, he does well for whoever is behind the scenes. Like Lorenzo, he would just throw Dana out there and Dana would do his thing. But when things got a little dicey and they needed somebody to be, you know, be the professional in the room, Lorenzo would show up and he would make you feel, you know, he would make you feel confident that he knew what he was doing and he could speak um, evenly and professionally. And even if, I don't know if he was lying ever, but even if he was lying, you, you believed, at least for me, I believed what Lorenzo Fertitta was telling me. Um, so I think he's a good figurehead. He takes the pressure off his bosses. He'll say he doesn't have bosses, but you know, the uh, majority of the, the UFC is now owned by Endeavor and, so yeah, he has bosses, but he takes the pressure off them, puts the focus on himself, which I think those people like because that's less time in the spotlight for them. But I think big picture, I think that hurts the UFC that, that he puts himself in the spot like that sometimes negatively, negatively, like with his rant against Steven Espinosa last night, it's not professional and it served no one other than the fans who, seem to think Dana White's this this tough guy, which think what you want, I guess. <laughs> so <laughs> with that, let me ask, because you said you started with covering the NHL. What are the differences between the parallel or like what are the what are the differences between the public relations, I guess, relationships and conversations and uh, communication with a major sport such as the NHL and covering um, MMA? Like, what are the differences between the two? Do you see a vast difference in, like, level of professionalism, the way they respond to you, the access they give? Like, talk to me about that. The NHL never, when I was, they never turned me down for, um, they never not, they never avoided answering a question I had. Um, They, off. When I wanted credentials, I could get them. I covered um, the Winter Classic when it was in Philly. And even when my writing was adversarial, they would still, you know, work with me, um, answer my questions, credential me. They never threatened me. In fact, um, when I reached out to the Capitals, and this was years ago, um, Ted Leonsis actually answered the email because they were getting negative. Um, I think this is from Bleacher Report. I think they were getting all negative coverage and he just said, you know, hey, well, you, you'll get credentialed. We'll, we'll have a relationship here and we'll see where it goes. And, you know, that 
that Ted Leonsis didn't have to answer me. He didn't know me. And he had no reason to answer me, let alone anyone, you know, even a national, a national syndicated columnist. He's the owner of the team. So that was a shock. Um, it was always refreshing that they would answer you um, when, whenever you had a question. And they never threatened it. They never bullied, even if you were negative. Um, and this is funny because someone reached out to me yesterday on Twitter about the difference. Um, and these teams have beat writers and they travel with the teams. They're with them, you know, for the whole season. And this is every other major sport, too. They're with them for the whole season. And even when they report negatively or take a position that makes the team look or a player look, it puts them in a bad light, they stay there. And if anyone has a reason to, to be a little nicer or a little kinder in their coverage, it's the guy that's going to see these people day after day after day. And that was kind of, that's kind of a shock that um, they don't do that. They report and they, you know, offer their opinions honestly, even if they are the beat writers, even if they're traveling with the team. And I don't think we see that in the UFC at all. Um, we see threats. I, I lost my credentials because of a story on ratings, which were true. Um, we see threats made all the time, whether they're spoken or implied that if you don't play ball, you're not going to get credentials. You're not going to get access. We know this happens. I mean, you know, it happens. Um, and that never happened in, in the, in the NHL, um, never, which, uh, it's, it's, it strikes me as odd that the way you, that, and this has become clear, very clear in the past couple weeks, Dana White thinks that the MMA media is his unpaid PR wing. He's all but said it, you know. These guys cover our sport and they're covering it negatively. Yeah, because when you do something that puts people in danger, that needs to be covered. He doesn't seem to want that covered. He, he said it again when he talked to the media down in, in Florida. And, and he just seems shocked that the media is doing its job as it's supposed to. Um, Josh Gross brought this up a couple of days ago that he he doesn't he didn't think when Dana White offered him the job to work for the UFC that Dana White thought he knew he didn't think that Dana White knew what um, journalism and media was what their folk what their what their purpose was and and this was years ago when the UFC first started the website and Gross said he still feels that way and I think that's obvious he doesn't. He, he either doesn't know what the media does and journalism's function is, or he willfully ignores it and thinks it should just focus on the positive. So that I think that's the big difference. Um, the NHL, no matter what, they worked with you, positive or negative. The UFC, they'll only work with you if it's 99.9% positive. So looking so, at that, how is your relationship with like Bellator or the PFL or any other organizations within MMA that you may cover? When I reach out to Bellator, they'll, they'll always answer me. PFL will most of the time answer me. Um, if I, if I ask Bellator for specific information, I'm not afraid to ask them for something that UFC I know would say no. Um, or won't answer me. The UFC is just, when I ask something now, I just get ignored. Um, I don't even get a no comment. 
but Bellator, even if they're not going to comment, they'll 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 reach back to me and tell me, hey, we can't talk about that. And you know, often they'll give a reason. Sometimes my asks are a little, you know, more than I think they're going to give me, but I take a chance at least. But uh, the UFC, I asked one time just how many fights a fighter had left on their contract, and I didn't even get an answer for that. But you know, Bellator's been good, PFL's been pretty good, but the UFC is—they uh, haven't worked with me since uh, since that time I wrote the story about the the ratings being poor. Yeah, that's really um, unfortunate to hear. And we follow each other on social media, and I see a lot of the interactions that come across uh, people such as you, such as Luke Thomas, Fernanda. I mean, just about anyone who has a, I guess, more of a, I hate to use the term moral compass, but covers a sport with integrity, for lack of a better term. Um, what is the most ridiculous story you have um, of someone diving into your mentions, to your DMs, to confront you about something you said about the UFC or mixed martial arts? I think it's been this, that the story with Zach Benny and the epidemiologist um, and his take on what would have been safe for the fights. Um, I think that's, since, ever since then, it's been terrible. And, and Luke said the same thing. It's shocking that that would be the would be the thing that people pick up on, because all we're asking is for people to be safe and healthy, and you know we all know that when these fighters agree to fight, they're they're risking a lot, but they're only risking between themselves. So that I'm not fine fine with it because I know that risk comes with a lot of damage that's going to you know catch up down the road. I know that I struggle with that. And I think um, most of us struggle with that, that cover the sport on a day-to-day basis. But the, the COVID-19, the, uh, the illness is, it's a virus. So it's going to be able to spread to people who have nothing to do with the sport. Um, anyone that these people come into contact with, their family, their friends, their grandparents, they could all get sick. And it, it should have been a simple thing to say, yeah, this makes sense to be as safe as possible. But all we heard was, you know, well, they want to fight. Who are you to stop them to fight? We're not trying to stop them to fight, fight, not stop them from fighting. We just want them to be safe and everyone around them to be safe. It was just shocking that these these folks uh, cared so little about human life that they, they people they don't even know, they'll never meet. All they wanted to see was the fights at any cost. That was, I think... That was the one that just shocked me the most. It's 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 a, it's terrible. It's terrible that that's that this sport means so much to people that they'll discount the lives of people they don't even know. It's crazy. Do you think we're ever going to be in a position where we'll see change in that from a fan base standpoint? Like I think about the NFL, and as more in, information comes out about concussions or about the longstanding impact on you know such physical play. And you see that kind of trickling down to the way some leagues are changing the way kids are allowed to play. Do you think we'll ever see a situation where the relationship that MMA has with its fans and the people that cover it, do you ever see that situation changing? Oof, that's a good question. I think uh, the people that cover it, um, if they're honest, they they struggle with, with uh, what they do. Um, I do. I know Ben Folks has talked about it. 
Um, Chad Douglas has talked about it. There's that you know that what you're covering and what you're making a living on is um, future pain and damage of of people. It's not a comfortable situation. So I don't think I'll ever, you know, after 10 plus years, I'm not going to develop a, a comfort with that. Obviously, if I haven't done it already. Um, I think the other sports, I think what, what has happened there is, especially with football and baseball as well, I think, is that um, the unions had a lot to do with it. They can force change. And so with players getting CTE and, and brain injuries, and we're seeing that that change in football and even baseball with the pitchers, they're trying to make pitching safer. And because of the, the line drives that come back and batting, you can't, you can't throw at someone's head. Um, but I think the unions have a lot to do with that and the pushback. Also, the, uh, the money part of it has a lot to do with it too. With these football players, they know now that their careers are going to be very limited. And so you're seeing more and more players get in, uh, make a bunch of money as much as they can, and then get out while they still have their, their – they're not you know, totally broken down physically and mentally. I don't think that's going to change in MMA, one, because the pay is so low, two, because there's no union to push back. And when fighters do push back, they get you know, pushed to the side. Um, so it's hard to see this changing unless the money changes and fighters can start caring about their, their long-term health more um, and a union gets in. I think those are the two big things that will – will make a change. Um, and of course, having someone at the top that, that also does more than pay lip service to, to health and safety would also be nice. So the last thing I'm going to ask you before we change this to a couple of different types of, of questions. Um, Major League Baseball had Kurt Flood where they really, you know, his sacrifice of his career drove the push of unionization in Major League Baseball and basically across sports. From an MMA standpoint, who would have to be the individual to do the same thing to see a association of some sort be built across MMA? I really thought when St. Pierre got involved, that was going to be a, a moment of change. And then when he kind of, and I had a discussion with Leslie Smith about this online he kind of used it more for his gain, his personal gain to get a new deal. And then once he got that deal, he kind of dropped out and didn't support the unionization as much. And that was really disappointing. And I know that that does not still does not sit well with, with Leslie Smith, nor should it, because I think she really believed that he was going to be involved um, with, with that. I would like to say, um, McGregor, if he really wants to branch out on his own, um, he has the money to do so I, at this point, obviously, unless he squandered, you know, a lot of it, but I don't know if he did. Um, McGregor could be a real change maker. Um, if he says, you know what, I want to, I'm going to step away and focus on 
the 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 unionization side of things he could really he could really make a difference because of his power his name he could get it into the uh the mainstream media much more than someone like leslie smith would be able to um after him maybe uh uh, maybe someone like cormier but i the ufc has him kind of locked up in their graphs right now with uh, working with them, but he he could be someone that could really do a good job representing. <sighs> but the UFC has done a great, great, great job of not making superstars. They've made stars, but uh, outside of McGregor and maybe St. Pierre, there's never been a superstar. Um, and we saw that, you know, when when St. Pierre started to get a little too big. The UFC kind of reined him in and was very dismissive of him at times and treated him poorly at times. They haven't done that with McGregor just because I think the, the money he makes for them. Um, I just It's going to be so hard because the UFC has done a great job of making these fighters um, replaceable and having fans believe that if you come to an event, it's UFC. It doesn't matter who it's going to be. As long as the UFC is on that, on that poster, it's going to be a great event and you should pay for it. Um, they've done a fantastic job promoting that more than the fighters. And yeah, it's going to be a big uphill battle. And also because anybody that steps out of line, they're just going to replace them. They're going to throw, they're going to throw them to the side. Um, So it's going to have to be someone that is really big, and has a real good PR team behind them and is not afraid to uh, have get mud slung at them. And that's right now. Um, McGregor is really the only one that fits that bill, but will he be the one? I don't know if the UFC makes him mad enough, maybe, but it's, it's an uphill battle. It's going to have to almost be a giant group um, that, you know, to get, to get, um, to really make change. And I know Leslie Smith and Lucas Middlebrook and uh, John Johnson tried to make that happen and it, it failed. And now, you know, Middlebrook's a lawyer and the other two fighters, they're, they're out of the UFC. So the message is sent. Don't, don't try this. So it's going to be hard. Yeah, you're right about that. Um, I want to talk to you for a few minutes about some of your work. Uh, so you have your podcast and your newsletter. Come on now. Uh, where did that come from? I know you fluctuated with the idea a little bit of doing like a shorter episode format. Like how has that uh, worked out for you? And just tell me about your podcast and newsletter. Like how did that come about? And what are some of the things that you're working on from there? What what happened with that was when I left Junkie, I was like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to change what I do. I'm going to, you know, I, there's not a lot of people who are naming names and holding the uh, the powers that be, you know, to account. Um, Luke obviously is one that has done it, and now he's out on his own. Um, ben Folks does it. Josh Gross, obviously, another one that does it. Steven Morocco does it. But outside of that group, Karam Karam Zadine does it. John Nash. Outside of that group, um, there's not many people that really do that kind of work. So I was like, all right, I'm more comfortable doing this anyway. That's more my true voice. So that's what I'm going to do. If I do it as a newsletter and a podcast only, I'll still do it. 
you know, be just because I like doing it. Um, and that's how the podcast and the newsletter started. It was, I didn't have any, when I moved, when I left junkie, I didn't have anywhere to go. So I just did that. Um, and then bloody elbow called up, you know, shortly after, and that worked out great for me and, and is working out great for me. But the idea was to be, not be beholden to anyone and just offer my genuine opinion. Um, and bloody elbow is letting me do that as well. So that's great. Um, but it was just wanting to do what I wanted to do and not, not worrying about the repercussions, not having a boss who is worried about, you know, is this going to hurt our advertisement? Are we going to lose our credentials to the UFC? Um, so that's where that started. And bloody elbow has allowed me to do that as well. So that's great. Um, but that's, yeah, that's, that's where that took off. Um, uh, as far as the newsletter goes and the podcast, it, it was a little nerve wracking at first, especially the podcast, but I've gotten more comfortable with that. And, and so what it is, is I try to find something that really speaks to me and that's what I'm going to write and co- write about or speak about for that day. So, um, it's become much more the podcast than the writing on the, on that side right now because it's just easier to sit down behind a mic and, you know, say, all right, here's what I'm thinking for today and then move on to the next day. Um, so it's much more podcast now and bloody elbows also doing the, uh, the best of which takes, um, an hour's long from the previous week. We get it. We break that down into an hour and put that out. So I appreciate that from them as well. So it's just what I feel, what I think for that moment and, it's honest and I don't really care about repercussions and I just do it. How has the response been so far? Um, I know it, I remember when you launched it, we were talking about it at fight metric. Uh, what was that last year? How, yeah. how has the response been so far? It's grown, but it hasn't grown greatly. It's still tiny. Um, I looked at the, uh, the best of has, we've only done two of the best stuff for bloody elbow and they've done pretty good as far as far as the, uh, listens, I believe, um, much better than uh, the newsletter and the podcast that I do on my own. Um, but that doesn't, when I said I was going to do these things, it, it wasn't based on, I mean, if I could have made a living off the podcast and the newsletter, great. But I said that and, I, and I'll say now, even if these, if I lose my job and I have to go back to doing, you know, my regular working and no longer relying just on MMA freelancing, I'll still do the newsletter and the podcast just because that's what it, I enjoy it. So while it would be great to say I'm making a living from that, I'm not, and um, I'm not really worried about it. So if it grows, it grows. I would, you know, I would love it to grow, but it, I'm not going to stop doing it because it's what I genuinely enjoy doing. And that's actually a great segue into what I was about to ask next. Um, what piece of content, if you had to pick one across your career, are you most proud of? I enjoyed, and I posted it because it was his birthday. It was a Dustin Hazlitt profile after he quit and retired, and it went into what he has been doing um, since he left the sport. I really, really, really enjoyed doing those stories, and I did three or four of them, um, but they were so time-consuming. Because you would take, uh, I think I talked to Mac Danzig for, you know, four or five hours. And then I have to, you know, you have to 
type that all up and then you have to make a story into it and then you know mma is not the best paying um gig so you end up making maybe a dollar an hour on on all the time you put into that and but those were those were the most enjoyable things i did um i really liked talking to dr benny recently for that epidemiologist story um the things I did with the walkout with Lucas Middlebrook, I liked that. Uh, so I I, I I like doing the I like doing the profiles. I like doing the journalism side of the thing, but it's just so time consuming, so difficult. But I I think maybe now that I'm more comfortable on the podcast, I will uh, I'll do more of these things maybe on a, in a podcast kind of way, and maybe turn them into uh, written stories as well. But those were the most enjoyable ones by far. And who are some of the journalists or media members that you follow? MMA guys, folks. Yeah. Um, or just or, or or just sports in in general. Who are some of the sports journalists that, that you um, follow and seek out their content? Oof. MMA, it'll be the the you know Chuck Mendenhall, Ben Folks, Chad Dunn. Pretty much at the Athletic would be a good start. <laughs> Um, Dan did a great job putting a team together there. Um, I'll read, uh, the bloody elbow folks, obviously, I think they're doing a good job um, reporting on the, the ins and outs of the sports that other folks are afraid to cover. Uh, Steven Morocco has always been someone I looked up to, um, because he's a great reporter. He's really has the ability to, uh, to do a lot of investigative stuff and he does it well. And he too is someone that, uh, that pays the price for the way he, the what he covers and how he covers it. He's, he's, sometimes fighters don't like him. Sometimes the UFC doesn't like him, I, and he does not. He doesn't care. Luke obviously does a fantastic job. Um, probably the best at what what I'm trying to do and what other folks are doing. Just trying to dig into the sport and really look at what's going down from a you know business and a behind-the-scenes perspective. Um, those are the uh, MMA folks. But outside of that, I do a lot of... Uh, I don't read a lot of sports stuff. I read a lot of other general um, journalism. And I, and I wrote about this in the, the newsletter the, uh, a while ago, and that I would wish that more people would read outside of their... outside of the beat that they cover. Um, it gives you a, a better perspective. It's lets you, you know, get a little bit a better idea of how to put stories together. And what I find it also does, and this can be profiles, it could be journalism stories, it could be anything. If you if you're interested in something, read it and get ideas from it. Just jot down ideas that come to you from those stories, and you can get good ideas that are different than the normal daily MMA coverage. Um, I think that's one of the big problems with MMA right now is how fast it's coming at us. And and this is one of the reasons that The Athletic is so good uh, because they're not tied to the the day-to-day as so much as they're trying to tell good stories. Um, uh, the websites now, the action's so fast, you're on the one fight and then you're on to the next. It doesn't allow things to really grow and it doesn't allow those those uh, entities to really cover big picture stories. 
the UFC may that might be by design from the UFC because if something bad happens, the action is so fast, we've moved on to something other, uh, something else story was like like, I mean the COVID nineteen thing is going to stick around for a while, but if something small and terrible happens within a month, we've have forgotten about that just because of all the fights. So I think the athletic does a great job with that. But I would say, you know, read who you like in MMA if you're an MMA journalist, but also you have to look outside of MMA, find some things that you like and learn from them, get ideas from them and try and, you know, be a little different in the MMA world. Break free. Oh, that's fantastic. That's, I, I like that closing statement there. So with that in mind, um, why don't you let everybody know where they can find your content and if they want to um, engage with you, how, how can they reach out? Um, you can get me on Twitter. It's just Trent Reinsmith, at Trent Reinsmith. Um, that's probably the easiest. Um, the come on now thing is come on now at Substack. So if you go into Substack, just come on now, C-M-O-N-N-O-W, one word. Um, easiest, though, is just Twitter because I'll tweet all this stuff out You know, every day. I'm pretty... Anytime I'm sitting here working, I'll have Twitter open and if something pops into my brain, I'll tweet it and I probably shouldn't do that as much as I do, but I do and I'm trying to control that. But um, yeah, just hit me up on Twitter. Um, it's probably the easiest. Awesome. And Bloody Elbow, obviously. Bloody Elbow, you can find me and le- probably doing at least you know two things a week over there. So easy to, easy to find over there as well. Awesome, man. Well, I appreciate that, uh, Trent. And with that in mind, we're going to go ahead and close out. Um, Thank you again for your time on this Sunday and enjoy the rest of your week. Okay. Thank you, man. You take care. Have a good one. All right. You too.